Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And today we're going to have a special episode on family violence in Lebanon, uh, especially with the current economic uh, and security situation in the country. And also we will discuss period poverty, also because of the economic situation in the country. And with us today, we've got Dr. Jinan Osta, who will be introduced by Dr. Jaldari and Dr. Hamad Ali Jaldari, who you all know and has been on the podcast previously. Thank you both for being here. And Dr. Jaldari, you can introduce Dr. Osta. Definitely. It's a pleasure to be back, Khalil. Dr. Osta is a professor of clinical medicine at the American University of Beirut uh, Medical Center in the Family Medicine Department. She is the immediate past president of the Wonka World Organization of Family Medicine, Eastern Mediterranean region. She has a special interest in maternal child health and gender-based and family violence. In addition, she has a lot of research in the field and training manuals. But most importantly, she is my family physician and my father-in-law's family physician and my daughter's family physician. She is a super doctor. She really embodies everything a family medicine physician is from cradle to grave. So I'm really glad to be doing this episode with her. Yeah, and actually, just, just to add, my, my wife worked at AUB, and when I told her I was doing an episode with Dr. Osta, she's like, this is, a, this is a big thing. How did she accept to be with you on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm pretty much pleased. To. Thank you. So I'm going to dive right into it and ask you how you became involved with family violence. Okay, how I became involved, basically being a family physician, you know, pretty well, when you are a family physician, you get so much involved in people's intimate and more sensitive issues in their their family. And when I was practicing, I was hearing a lot of stories about that person beat me, I'm feeling unhappy with that person, and uh, I'm feeling, and I had a lot of psychosomatic, you Definitely in family medicine, you would face a lot of psychosomatic complaints. And whenever you ask about why, they, many times the answer will be in family violence. And this is why I, how I got involved in it and started reading about it, uh, attending conferences, meetings. At the time, long time ago, I'm not going to say how many, many years ago, but almost like 15 to 20 years ago. We didn't have much knowledge about it, but... Uh, I got even more and more involved when a group of medical students uh, wanted to organize a workshop on uh, family violence. And that was uh, the really trigger for me to get more involved and start doing more academic work on the field and do courses, trainings, and uh, developing training manuals and curriculum on the issue. And since then, involved in that. And you're such a... um... I don't know because it's because of your exposure to it, but I remember like uh, back in training, uh, you always uh, taught the lectures, but also when you were preceptor, uh, every time we had the case that was psychosomatic or anything like that, you always, uh, we used to say, family violence or gender-based violence. And you would uh, push us to dig deeper, even though it was very uncomfortable to us uh, as students and residents, but you really pushed us to investigate these further. And I guess you, you really uh, learn not to shy away from them, but to or, uh, to try to help. So Definitely. Uh, I believe in, uh, okay, in Lebanon, we did this study and we found that around 55% of women are subject to violence, but that was a long time ago. Now I expect it's going to be longer, more. 
But I do believe that uh, family violence is very common and it's the basis of many of the psychosomatic complaints. This is why I do encourage, as you said, medical students and residents to ask about it. For many reasons, usually we tend to avoid getting into that feel basically for many reasons. So we, we feel un- uncomfortable. We think it is uh, talking uh, to a patient into too many sensitive issues. It may probably offend the person. Or many times we don't know what we're going to do when uh, a person tells me, well, I'm being beaten or I'm being subject to violence or I have this bad encounter or this bad relation that's really killing me. But the way I look at it is that if you ask, it really helps just by asking. And actually, we have, we did a study on women in Lebanon, at least in Lebanon. And we found out that many women in Lebanon, they just wait for the doctor to ask it. And they are ready to talk once you ask them about it. But they don't because we actually don't ask. And it's not that difficult. I mean, uh, once you get the training and you start it the first time, the second time, it becomes a lot easier for a doctor to start asking about violence. You don't have to solve the women's issues or the person's issues, but at least you show them that you care and you are there for them. And you feel the women, do they they sometimes come with their husbands or a lot of times they're on their own and you can ask them that question? When you ask the question, they have to be alone. That's the basic principle of asking about these questions. But whenever they come with the husband and the husband takes over the conversation, then I know I'm dealing with a case of violence. And this is or of controlling behavior. Let's put it that way. And uh, this is when I do some tricks or try to get the person alone, the woman alone, and start asking her the questions. Have you noticed now with this period of stress in the country with the economic crisis and the security crisis in the country, have you noticed an increase in the cases, uh, at least anecdotally, like just talking to your patients? But now we don't have statistics, but we know that uh, many um, hotlines uh, addressing uh, violence against women, uh, they have received a lot more calls during the lockdown and COVID, and then after the economic crisis than uh, before. In my practice, definitely I'm seeing a lot, a lot of violence, basically psychological, but uh, sometimes also physical violence. The problem is that they are locked down, not only because of COVID, but also you have to consider there is no electricity, there is no internet, the phone calls, they are uh, they are staying with their uh, spouses at home, and therefore they don't have enough access to helplines. Uh, and if they want to make calls, there is always the aggressor who stay, uh, who's around and asking them, who, who are you talking to? And, you know, so it's making life more difficult for them. Uh, they're having better access when they come to clinics and start talking about their diseases, but actually they're talking about, they want to just to, come, to ventilate and talk about what they're going through. I can definitely attest to that. In clinic, a lot of the times a patient will come for a headache or neck pain. And if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll, you'll find out that she's a victim of family violence. And it, it's very prevalent. I was surprised in my high, high school class. So there was about uh, 50 women in my high school class. Four of them, I know for a fact, are victims of family violence. And I went to a private school 
and a lot of uh, middle to upper middle class people. So it's it's very prevalent. It's everywhere. So just like you said, Dr. Osta, you just need to ask and, and you'll be surprised how common it is. Uh, whenever I started the, uh, the uh, session on when I, I'm training on uh, family violence and I ask the students or the residents or whoever positions are attending, how many cases of violence have you encountered in the past few months? And many, many times they tell me very few would raise hands and say, I did. And then I, my question is, how many times did you ask? And the, major, and the main reason is they're not encountering because they're not asking. And many physicians would always address those complaints on the just organic level. If I have a headache, I take the headache. If I have a dizziness, I give medication for dizziness. If she has pains, I give her analgesics. They don't dig further into why is she psychologically or mentally not feeling okay. And once you start, this is where the answer lies. So I think a lot of people are afraid to ask because they don't know what to do next. So if you find out that a patient is a victim of family violence, what's the next step? What, sh what should you do about it? Uh, okay, the steps are, as a doctor, I mean, okay? The steps are, if somebody discloses violence, uh, the most important thing is never to justify violence. Now, one thing they do is that, okay, he beats me, but he's having a rough time. I know he's uh, shouting at me. I, I know he is uh, so much frustrated that he needs to let out. Uh, so they justify. And this is something we really need to break. We have to break the connection between stress and being feeling angry and using the other person as your punch bag. The other person is not a way to let go of your stress. Okay, this is a very important thing. Now, the second thing uh, that the healthcare workers need to do is to assess the degree of violence. How much does the violence affect the person? Is the person severely affected? Uh, the severity of the violence? Is the person, uh, is the violence increasing with time? Is she in or he in imminent danger? Is the violence going to escalate to the extent that the next time I'm going to see her, she's, she has broken bone or probably intracranial hemorrhage, or she's going to get a knife uh, stabbed. Uh, she's going to be stabbed by a knife. Uh, is she that depressed that she's going to think of suicide and so on? So it is assessing the severity of the violence and its impact on the person. Then starting discussing safety measures. How, what are the things that the person can do in order to stay safe and be least affected by violence? And I guess this is an important role that many physicians don't do. They don't probably know that they are supposed to do, but this is something I really stress in whenever I do sessions on family violence. It's our, it is definitely our role in doing this. It's like when you advise people against smoking because it's uh, risky to your health, you definitely have to make sure that the person is not at the higher risk of having uh, more injuries or being affected more by the violence. And then encourage the patient, validate their feelings and give them powerful messages so that they can, positive messages. So in order to counteract 
the negative effect of the fines. And also you can give them referrals to organizations that will assess them in violence. They can give them the uh, legal uh, counseling advice, uh, social advice sometimes if they are, if they cannot afford psychological counseling, they can also give them uh, psychological counseling in order to um, go, go along in the long way of decreasing the effect of violence and sometimes getting out of the violence cycle. Uh, I, something that I was surprised to, to learn about is that I cannot, as a physician, report a case of violence, right? The patient herself should report it to the authorities. Is that still the law? Oh, no. Because recently, the, uh, in the past few years, three years ago almost, family violence is considered to be uh, a crime. Physicians were supposed to mandatory report cases of violence, especially when considered severe. So there was, at one point in time, mandatory reporting. But now, because of, you know, what's going on in the country and uh, you cannot help with the, much with the, uh, the way uh, laws are being implemented, the way um, courts are being run, sometimes we, are, we may be risking the, um, the safety of the survivor. This is when we are advocating for discussing reporting with the survivor before going through the report, all right? So in case I find a case of, uh, I encounter a case of domestic violence or family violence, I will discuss the options with her and tell her that you have the right to report to police and we can secure a court order for what we call restraining order for that would maybe for around three months, whereby you can, during that time, start thinking whether you want to go proceed with the court or discuss other options that you have. But then you may be running the risk that it's on the last if you have, if there are certain, you know, how people get away with laws being implemented. This is also a possibility and it's up to you. You know the aggressor, you know how connected he or she may be, and it is up to you to decide what you want to go. But at any rate, I'm going to be with you. So basically what we're saying is that the law in Lebanon now protects a woman against family violence, but in certain instances, if the husband is connected to some politician, then uh, that may make it more difficult and may put the woman at risk if she reports it. Okay, if, uh, if the aggressor is connected, not necessarily to a politician, but you know how things are in Lebanon, uh, they can get uh, get away with things, yes. Not to mention also, let's also be sure, uh, be clarified that the social pressure in Lebanon also plays a role. So uh, the, uh, women are always being blamed for breaking families, for uh, making children uh, live without a father, for, uh, you know, you know how people can be pressured if they want to go to court, but they, uh, you know, so there is also a social pressure, major one. Sure there's NGOs, right? Non-governmental organizations. Yes, there are organizations, uh, if you're familiar with both, uh, they are very uh, Abad and uh, Kafa. They are uh, very well powerful and they uh, really, they can help 
and they are ready to help women who are survivors. And also they have programs working with men who are aggressors. So that also helps. And I know like a few years back when Rayal Hassan, she was the female minister of interior, she did a training, right, to the security forces on how to handle those cases. Security forces received trainings in the past. I'm not sure if it were at the, the time of Rayal Hassan, but sometimes there were several trainings. Some of them, they were at the time of Rayal Hassan, but even before. And UNFPA also have a role in that. And they trained many, um, many uh, social security forces in order to how to respond, how to address women, how to uh, help them out, you know. And uh, at that time, um, it was working pretty well. They, they really have women. But now, you know, when you call, sometimes they will tell you it is the least of their problems sometimes. Unfortunately. Not always, yes. It is not always a priority. Nowadays, it's not. Although it should be. I mean, family violence is a reflection of the violence outside. If you address it somehow, you can reach a non-violent society or at least least violent society. So I guess this would be like a good time to segue into uh, how uh, family violence is part of the bigger context of reproductive health in Lebanon. So maybe we can switch gears and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the state of reproductive health uh, in Lebanon currently. We do have a lot of programs working on uh, reproductive health. The financial crisis and lockdown and so on has affected a lot. The, uh, the programs, now we're doing research and we found out that many of the Lebanese women who were going to private clinics to receive uh, reproductive health services are shifting to uh, primary health care centers basically because of the cost. You know, the prices, uh, professional fees for consultations, not to mention the, uh, the uh, lab tests, uh, x-rays, uh, um, ultrasounds, and definitely mammographies and pap smears. Uh, the prices are going down high a lot, and many insurances are not covering um, nowadays because of the dollar rate and the problems associated, are not covering uh, preventive health services. So this is why even now women, they are decreasing the regular, uh, for antenatal, for example, we found out that they are cutting down the number of antenatal visits because they want to cut down the expenses. They are also decreasing the number of preventing health services. They're not doing as much mammographies and pap smears like they used to do before. Uh, the problem is also there because uh, the, um, uh, the uh, vitamins are no more subsidized. And now if they want to get the iron, the folic acid that they take in pregnancies, or the calcium and uh, vitamin D that they have to take to prevent uh, menopausal uh, bone loss, osteoporosis, uh, they are um, relatively expensive. So it is, uh, they're not, taking them regularly and if they are able to afford they're not taking them uh, judiciously every day like they're supposed to do. Uh, at the same time uh, the women uh, uh, the uh, financial crisis affected also the food security and uh, for women and they are decreasing the baking product meat and so on and we're seeing more and more women who are uh, anemic uh, who have, who jeopardize even 
the meals they have uh, for the sake of securing bigger food portions for their kids. So it's getting to be a problem in Lebanon and expected to grow bigger time. Yeah, I know like a lot of uh, uh, basic OCPs, for example, you cannot find them in pharmacies anymore. Literally, like there was two months in Lebanon where you couldn't find any OCP from any brand at any pharmacy. It was very bad. And now that they've kind of removed the subsidies, uh, one brand of uh, Yaz, for example, is around 200 thou. Um, that's almost a third of the minimum wage. It's, it's completely unaffordable anymore. That's and the big one, the, right? um, many of the uh, dispensaries, many of the healthcare centers, they are you can you don't find them available because the supply is increasing. So they used to be for free in uh, many health centers. Now uh, they're uh, running short on them too. So you barely find them. Many of them they are getting it from abroad. Yeah, they are requesting people from abroad to send them OCP. Now IUDs are more available and uh, women Lebanese women are more versed into IUDs they do at least uh, and they are available in the centers and they are uh, inserted there for relatively acceptable prices so, so basically we can say like prior to October 2019 for the most part this was not a huge issue because insurance companies were paying for preventative services right and and not uh, even after, for some time after the 2019, you can. Uh, the, uh, this problem with the insurance started when the uh, dollar rate started rocketing. Yeah. Because of the difference in pricing between the insurance itself, the price of the insurance, and the price of uh, supplies uh, that are being used to do these services. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it started last year when they started to remove the subsidies. Because until like March, I think 2021, uh, everything in the medical field was still subsidized more or less. In the past few months, in my, in, in my practice, it's basically in the past few months when you start seeing those changes happening. Like you said, in March 2021, I had many people coming for preventive services just before the prices started going up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so basically, I mean, and this was a big, big thing. We discussed oral contraceptive pills and intrauterine devices. I mean, these are important for, for many reasons, because also when, when you have an economic crisis, if you have bigger families, then you can't afford to support your kids. And in that case, uh, uh, oral contraceptive pills and IUDs are very important. And if they become out of reach to people, then that's a big problem. And it seems to me from what you're saying that it's for two reasons. One, you can't find them. Number two, if you do find them, you don't have the money to pay for them to, to buy them in that case. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Um, we're seeing more of unwanted pregnancies too these days. I, I was gonna ask you, so in, in Lebanon, abortion is still criminalized, right? And the current system that we have, it's primitive, it's ineffective, it's deadly. So uh, what's your assessment of uh, abortion right now in Lebanon? Okay, it's still uh, criminalized, it's not legal. It is, uh, we know it's being done on the table. Uh, we know that there are medications that people are purchasing in order uh, to terminate a pregnancy, uh, but still it is um, illegal. 
and it's being done with certain twists of uh, of findings. Like for example, they would say uh, loss of fetal heart. It is a missed abortion. You know, and this is when it becomes more accepted. But some women who consider that abortion is uh, against religion, they would go with the pregnancy, and this is when the problem is going to be bigger. So, but we're having at least uh, we're we're hearing cases also of certain abortions having complications like uh, PIDs, uh, infections, or bleedings. Yeah. I'm also hearing from a lot of patients about because uh, abortion is criminalized and they can't do it at uh, some hospitals, they have to do it in uh, some yeah. underground clinics and the doctors there are charging fresh dollars. So like $200 fresh for an abortion in an underground unhygienic clinic. Uh, it's, it's really sad what's yes. going on. Well, I don't expect you know they're going to legalize abortion, but at least uh, it is better to try to support the family planning projects or programs so that to be uh, contraceptions and um, methods of family planning would become more available to the greatest majority of population. I think it's the best to go by it if we don't want to do things against the law. I can compare it here to the to the U.S. I mean, there's always this huge debate on whether abortion should be legalized or not, and the huge debate whether uh, oral contraceptive pills should be paid for uh, or not, and whether preventative services should be paid for. So Obamacare started covering preventative services, which which I think helped tremendously. Uh, but I think that's where the debate goes. If you can't, if you're if the economy if you're economically challenged and you can't support a big family. The best way is to try to control the family numbers, and and uh, and that's similar to what's happening. It's better to start pushing for more for prevention, I would say, especially when it comes to having bigger families with the consequences of it, considering the financial crisis that we're having nowadays. Okay, so uh, this talk wouldn't be complete without talking about uh, period poverty right now in Lebanon and the increase in the price of pads uh, and tampons. Do you want to say something about this? They are becoming unaffordable. Uh, and we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of women using tissues. Sometimes I've heard women also using newspapers uh, as a substitute for uh, hygienic pads. Uh, with the, all the problems that may arise, some of them, um, they're talking about uh, irritation, um, itching, uh, associated with the use of this um, uh, material, let's put it that way. Because the prices of the hygienic pads, they are really becoming uh, unaffordable for a great majority of uh, women uh, these days. So um, it's unfortunate, yes. I mean, the prices have increased by more than 500%. Even the local brands are completely unaffordable, Yanni. What used to cost uh, 5,000 lira, now it's costing 250,000. It's, it's become a luxury item when we know virtually all the women in Lebanon need it. But I think more than, there was a report that I read recently, more than two thirds of women in Lebanon cannot afford buying pads at all, even the local brands. 
yes, this is why I'm saying they're resorting to the uh, way our great grandmothers used to deal with it before the invention of pads, which is using tissues that uh, they clean every now and then on a daily basis and then use later. Um, like uh, they would, yeah, it is a tissue like an old cloth that you have at home. Uh, this is what many women are using nowadays. Yeah, I've, I've in clinic, I can attest, like I've seen a lot of UTIs, a lot of uh, vaginitis, a lot of candida from the unhygienic products uh, women have to use. Yes, irritation, irritation. And uh, they don't change them frequently because they don't have many pads, tissue pads. So they have to get them really soaked before changing and washing them. And there's no water, keep it in mind, there's no electricity to wash PTY. They cannot afford detergents, they cannot afford uh, much detergents yeah, in uh, washing the solutions. So yeah, high, uh, personal hygiene is going to suffer too, unfortunately. Are, are, there, are there like NGOs helping with this? There are, there are. Uh, there are NGOs and agencies who are distributing hygienic paths. But basically, personally, I believe in, uh, it is a uh, short solution for a long, for a problem that we expect is going to stay long time. And I'm not, I don't expect the, uh, the economic crisis would disappear in a few months. I hope so, but it is not an expectation. So, um, and the dollar rate is going to drop uh, and the price of these items is going to drop and become really affordable. So we really need to think for longer term solutions. I know there's a lot of uh, local NGOs. Uh, Daurati is, is, is a big one that's doing a lot of work. But like you said, we've become an NGO nation. We need an NGO for family violence, an NGO for OCPs, an NGO for pads, an NGO for electricity, for schooling. Food for, I know, yeah. But what happens, I think, the absence of, of government. Yeah, but we're becoming more of um, I don't know if you want to cut this part, but I really hate it. I don't like it. We're always expecting people from abroad to help. And they are, we appreciate the help. Definitely we appreciate or else Lebanon would not have survived. But definitely we have to start thinking of solutions on the ground. Have you seen the movie uh, Padman? It's an interesting experience. Padman, it is uh, somewhere in India. Uh, he is, um, he was shocked by uh, when he got married that his wife was using pads and they used to make uh, the women who are menstruating stay outside the home for four or five days. And this is when he got the idea and the uh, hygienic pads were very expensive at the time. So he got the idea of starting working on developing hygienic pads. And he actually, ultimately, he ended up doing it and going around the country, showing most villages how to do hygienic pads for their women. I, I found the movie interesting. I'm not saying this is something we need to do, but at least start thinking how we can do that and address poverty period within 
the local environment. So what do you think is our role as doctors and healthcare workers in all of this mess? I know um, uh, we can help by supporting, we can help by trying to help as much as possible with the fees. Uh, how much I can do. What is the point of you? <laughs> it's not a fair question. But with the period poverty, with the, most of the economic things happening, it becomes a major challenge for us doctors, really major. We try to food secure samples for most of the women. But again, it is, um, it is again going into shorter and uh, short-term solutions. Let's put it that way. We're not having long-term solutions. I don't know. Do you have any idea? How can we? It's hard. I mean, to me, to me, I think it's it, the long-term solution should be with a, with good governance, I guess, because you can have a lot of short-term solutions that are individual efforts. But I, I don't know. I don't know if Hamad Ali or Dr. Osta have solutions without like good governance. I think because then it's all small efforts that probably will not lead to a reliable or a long-lasting solution. I guess. That you, you need a it's a systematic problem that needs systematic change. So we need to change the whole organization, the whole structure. Uh, we need to build a primary healthcare network. Uh, everything, uh, everything. It's, I don't know. Maybe elections, I guess. Elections, elections nationally, yes, yeah. and maybe in the Lebanese order physicians. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I hope the elections will make major changes. Are you running for the LOP elections? No. Sage, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not running for any political slash order. I, uh, I still believe we still have a lot to go work on that field. We need more awareness. I did, but you're I, not running away. <laughs> You're not running for LOP, but you're not running away. I'm not running away. I'm staying. You know me. I know you. Resilient and resisting. I like that. But Mubar, uh, how can we help? And I really don't know how we can help. And we try as much as possible within our limits, within our uh, small circle we can function in. But. I believe there is a lot to do, but how to do it in uh, in this um, in this environment? It may it, it is a major challenge. I think we need to uh, brainstorm. Maybe we should sit down together and brainstorm and see how we can make a change. I believe in physicians for change. Maybe we should. Maybe the next uh, podcast uh, we can dedicate an episode for uh, the upcoming LOP. Yes, sure. <laughs> Do you want to have any final words to conclude this conversation? I appreciate this uh, broadcast and I appreciate uh, you considering you know, taking this into consideration. <laughs> so I don't know what to say. Yeah, I mean, my, my thinking is, is maybe we should. I mean, a, a lot, there's a lot of Lebanese inside the country who are resilient and staying there and, and resisting and fighting, which is a great thing. I'm so happy for that. And I think 
At the same time, there's people who are outside, people who came and left. But I think maybe we should all stand hand in hand and support each other to try to implement uh, positive changes in the country. I mean, I think there's enough Lebanese in and outside that hopefully we should be able to do something more positive and help. Yes, definitely. And there is the will. It's not the number. There is definitely the will. And I guess uh, we need to get together in order to help and try to make things better for women and for people in general. Definitely. We can. We can do a change. Thanks to you both uh, for this uh, podcast. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Osta, for... Uh, for being with us today. And Thank Dr. Jedri for bringing Dr. Osta on. My absolute <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, Ktir. It was nice. I liked it.